This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Today I sit down with Dr. Catherine Raymond, Professor of Southeast Asian Art and Director for the Center for Burma Studies at NIU, and NIU grad student Carmine Bruschelli. Join me as we learn about the not-so-lost art of Burmese reverse glass painting and find out more about NIU's Center for Burma Studies. Well, welcome to the studios. I'm here um, with Catherine Raymond from the uh, School of Art and the Center for Burma Studies, and Carmine Bruschelli. Welcome, you two. Welcome. <laughs> thank, thank you for coming in. They gave a great presentation on reverse glass painting in in our Friday Brown Bag series, and we wanted to rope them in to come in and talk about it a little bit and, and tell us about their research and things Burma and, and art. So, again, thank you for coming by. So, the history of um, or the origin of the project started when I was looking at our collection, uh, the Burma Art Collection, which started with the creation of the center in 1986. And we had some reverse glass painting in it. What, what role was art in the initial creation of the center? Was it a big centerpiece of it? Um, this reverse glass painting was not uh, at all included in the first gift of 87 masterpieces we received from one of the founder member, Sarah Baker, who had promised if a center for Burma studies was created, she will give a beautiful collection which was in custody in Switzerland after they had stayed two years in Burma before 62. So, um, but this uh, reverse glass painting came from a donor who is actually in New York, and uh, he collected them in the 70s and uh, started giving a gift to us in the 90s. And he gave um, a dozen of them. And as I was writing the catalog of the collection, with an essay for each one, I started documenting the reverse glass painting, and I discovered there was nothing written about it. And I started looking at where can I find any article, any information about it, and I discovered there was a temple in Thailand. Uh, an American artist was uh, uh, working on it after an earthquake. But this temple was a kind of Burmese temple, although it was Shan, from Shan states, uh, near the Thai border in uh, northern west, yeah, northwest uh, of um, Bangkok. And it's probably the best repository of 200 reverse glass painting from the 19th century with Burmese caption, and it was a huge discovery for me. Meanwhile, nothing was written on this temple regarding the reverse glass painting. How, how many how many panels or, or of, were of reverse glass painting were in this temple? 200. Well, exactly, 186. Some have been broken and uh, replaced over the years, but some were not replaced. And uh, when I did the calculation, I still don't understand why these um, 12 were missing. But um, it was 200 according to the captions. We have two stories and they are numbered and we have number one and number 100 for the two stories. So we knew they were 200. Right, originally. So. For our listener, let's catch them up on what is, when we say reverse glass painting, what, uh, uh, Carmine, Catherine, tell us what we should expect to see. I think uh, I let uh, Carmine, who had the responsibility during our last project, to speak about the, uh, the art of making reverse glass painting. Yeah, so reverse glass paintings are actually really commonly made throughout the world. This is not an art tradition that is specific to Burma. 
Um, basically, if you imagine a plane of glass, just a normal glass surface. Doesn't have to be special glass. It 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 can be prepared depending on the process. There are many different ways of creating reverse glass paintings. Um, but basically, you just paint the reverse side. And what the artist will do is he will have to begin the painting in the opposite way that a normal painting would be made. So if you think of a landscape, traditionally an artist will first paint the sky and then the mountains, the grass, and so on. In this case, the foreground has to be painted first, and then the background is the last thing that will be added. If there is a person that is being depicted, which is usually the case in Burmese glass paintings, you'll have spirits or the Buddha or certain images like that. If there's a face, the eyes will be painted first, and then the nose, and then the color of the skin will be added, and so on. So okay. the artist works backwards to so create So that, like, the if image. it's something with like outlines, those the outlines which would go normally last on a Mm-hmm. On a on a painting, those go first. Yes, exactly. So the result of the painting is you you have this really glassy, shiny um, surface that at that point you can hang it on a wall, and it is protected by the elements because it is protected by the glass itself. And also, you cut out the need for paper, so you just need right. to have the glass. I will add two things on this um, specific art from the nineteenth century, with the caption. The caption in Burmese was written also first. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, also what is really important to know is not uh, like the the glass windows of church or cathedrals. You cannot have the light going through. So usually it's adding either to a, a wooden wall or to a specific uh, background, which is protecting even more so in it so it's so it's opaque but it because of the glass on the front it has a very luminous almost yes. uh, shiny reflective that that uh, would be impossible to you'd have to glaze the front or some you, you're still not able to and achieve the, that without and the good thing is um because it's protected by the glass the uh, the pens are not faded mm-hmm. i'm assuming in a in a temple that might be have open walls or that might have that, that, that this is a particular advantage to the elements and to... Yes. For the architecture of this type, especially these Shan Buddhist temples created in the 19th century when the British arrived and needed some teak wood and uh, the, uh, the workers needed to be protected or to get the protection of the spirit of the wood, they were building also these uh, temples. The, the Burmese workers? No, yeah, the Burmese the workers. Shan. Yeah, the Shan in particular. So these temples were beautiful. It was at the end of the 19th century. They were far away of the reach of the king. They were not protected by sumptuary laws, which was imposed to anybody building up a temple, a Buddhist temple, according to the rank in the uh, royal family. But if you were out of reach because you were in another territory, you could really have this beautiful temple which were not following the rules of the the sumptuary laws, which um, make them this very rich merchant um, having these temples for their next life or getting married for their next life. So what did the sumptuary laws try to try to ban in a temple like that normally? The, the, what were they getting around by doing this? Well, they were um, they were building uh, beautiful temples, which was, of course, um, possible for them because they were making a lot of money with the sale of the teak wood to the British, who were in demand during this colonial period as they were building a new colonial empire in Lower Burma. So was this a merit-making exercise for those making a lot of money? There is a merit-making exercise. There is also protection against the bad mood of the spirits of the Mm. wood because (laughs) any tree will have spirits and uh, the cutting of many, many trees starting to alarm. a lot of spirits that need assuaged in the uh, (laughs) teak trade. But the merit-making was really for the old communities. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Carmine, I know you. I think you referenced this in um, in your in your lecture, but mm-hmm. how how old is reverse glass painting? And I guess maybe as old as glass, but what is its connection to modern photography? Yeah, so the interest for me uh, in in the tradition of reverse glass painting, specifically with this artist who's working in Burma, his name is Koshan. He's using a specific technique that we have not seen used yet in other reverse glass paintings. What he does is he's taking a photographic developing method that was used, it was a 19th century British uh, photographic method that was introduced to Burma and called wet collodium photography. So he's taking this method not to reproduce photographs, but to reproduce outlines into the glass. So he does not have to sit there and paint meticulously um, an outline of the image and then coloring it afterwards. So take a, take a black and white image and expose it onto a mm-hmm. light? light. Yeah, he's taking his his design. So normally, if you imagine just you can take a piece of paper and draw an outline of of whatever object you want to to use, he then uses the photographic uh, method to create a negative image. And then he reveals out of the negative image, he reveals a positive image onto glass. So the positive image will be just the outline of the image. It looks sort of like a coloring book, but on glass. And then his workshop will go in and add the colors. So this is a 19th century technique, but the reverse glass painting tradition actually goes back much, much further. And that is what Dr. Ramon has been working on, tracing the origins of this of this tradition in the area of Burma. Does does its history go into China and India? Does it does it have a European lineage, or what are the? You said there's not a lot written about it. So what can we sleuth together from what we know? Um, the first um, movement I identify was a movement from uh, the Dutch uh, going to uh, China, as well as the French. And uh, we can trace, and that's very well known, uh, the Chinese in the 17th century being extremely interested by this technique and started copying prints and engravings into glass. So, so like Dutch masters who are using mirrors and, and glass, maybe that those are making their way over to those technologies with the VOC or coming over to, to, exactly. to China and then being... Yeah, the, uh, the East Indian uh, company from the Netherlands uh, the VOC was uh, an important factor because they have wonderful orchids, as you know. And uh, because of that, I was able to retrace uh, a certain number of glass painting arriving, not only uh, in China, which was well known, but in Thailand. And uh, so I'm assuming there were two movements. The Chinese wants the master and so the interest of the foreigners for this glass painting system. They exported um, artists as well as artwork toward Indonesia. We have the trace of it. They, uh, we have a presence of a Chinese influence and Chinese master in Thailand. But we know also it went directly as a gift for the king Narai in Thailand in the 17th century. And after um, the taken of Ayutthaya in uh, 1787, I think we, we have a movement of artists coming from uh, the, the court of Ayutthaya working for the king in Burma. And we know that because we have the first uh, written record in the British um, in the British diaries of this mission, uh, which went to the court of Ava in 1795, and then we have another quote in 1855. So we have this long history of reverse glass painting arriving. The first one is the most interesting because in 17, 
1995, the king was asking the technique to the Symes embassy coming to visit him. said, well, do you know the technique of this flat glass painting? <laughs> he had an artist working for him. And we, we have the record of that. So the, This will excite you, but I'm... I'm thinking that when I was looking in the wills and testaments in of Batavia um, Duchess India Company, that some of these prominent men and women had, you know, a list of their whole inventories in those wills and testaments. And I think there's some. It didn't make sense at the time, but like that, you know, like glass um, was listed with the art rather than with like other objects. And so I'm wondering. Mm. I should go back and check, yeah. my no- <laughs> check my notes. Well, this is making sense with a book which was offered to me by uh, Professor Ludwig uh, Wagner, a specialist of the VOC who worked a lot uh, with the, uh, the archives uh, on Southeast Asia. And uh, in this book, which was published, uh, I think, uh, a year ago, uh, they mention in those who were dying, those Dutch dying abroad in Southeast Asia, they were inventory, and their belonging were auctioned for the family to give back the money. And among this uh, list of belongings, they were reverse glass painting and painting, which were not, of course, done necessarily in the Netherlands, but by local artists sometimes, and reverse glass painting was part of it. It would seem like the if you, if you think about some of the mural traditions in Southeast Asia and comparing mm-hmm. to some of the images that, you, that, that there, there's, a, there's an obvious correspondence with some of the, that, that it would be attractive to those, the, the, this art form would be to, to those, but I'm guessing that also... Um, it has a hard time surviving and moving in the way that a yeah. a piece of wood or I could see these getting damaged or broken. Is that part of the mystery of why we, we don't have as many of these from the past that, that we might like to? Yeah. Um, and also, if it was done like the one we have uh, here or the one in Vachongklang uh, from Meong Son in Thailand, uh, it was easy to, to, to transport them from Mandalay to, um, to the border because it was a small format of... Uh, like 8 by 10? 8 by 8. I eight think it's, it's, it's a kind of square. And so apparently they were able to um, to carry it because they had the caravan routes yeah. uh, very well trained for centuries. I guess the, I'm just trying to think back through time, packing these and transporting these. It would have been would a, have been interesting. That's why they had endeavor. yeah they had different sets. We can see that because we found from the same period not necessarily from the same hands, um, the same uh, depiction. It would seem like the, the water routes would be much easier to transport these over, like the, up the Irrawaddy of Salween rather than no, overland. They were, were they making overland too? Uh, they were using this, yeah, they were using both. I mean, if you look at the, the traditional roads, they were using rivers and... Um, elephant as well as uh, buffalo mm. and uh, bull and so on to, to, to carry things across. Uh, lacquer and uh, bronze and a lot of images for those living du- uh, under the Burmese, um, uh, the Burmese occupation uh, in the uh, 17th, 18th century. Um, was widely spread. So their roots were carrying everything. Sure, sure. What is the... What's the role of reverse class painting today? How does... Some of your some of your images had some great mm-hmm. contemporary artists that are, that are working in, in, in this medium. So where do you position it among the output of... Burmese art that's coming today? 
I would say it's it's declining. Um, the interest seems to be more in contemporary painting, just the regular traditional painting style. Um, but in terms of from a religious perspective, um, I think devotees and even tourists are more interested in printed material. Um, and that was one of the things that we were exploring in our research. It is really difficult to find living artists that are working today making reverse glass paintings. And we believe that printing technology has replaced this the, the interest in this type of image because you can recreate bright, beautiful images with a printed material and you can laminate them uh, to simulate the the effect and sell them for a lot less than you would have to to pay somebody to make a handmade reverse glass painting so something that was really interesting for us when we were looking and searching uh, in the markets and various pagodas around Burma was trying to find sellers who were make who were still um, who still had these types of paintings available and um, we knew in the Shwedagun Pagoda there would be some, uh, but little did we know that we really had to seek and, and ask around to try to find somebody who still had these paintings. And when we did find them, it turned out that she wasn't really selling them to the public. She had them in her storage, in the back of her shop, and in the front of her shop for because people. Because they, they, they weren't moving? They, they weren't moving. They were a little bit older. Some of them were damaged because they were her father's. Um, so she didn't see that they were really interesting to the public and because there was no demand, she put them in the back of her shop. Um, but this turned out to be one of the most, uh, rewarding finds because she had a very large collection of reverse glass paintings in a different tradition that we didn't have before. Um, the father was paint, was creating the reverse glass paintings with not the photographic technique that we found with Koshan, and they were not handmade completely either. Um, we're still trying to study this a little bit further, but he's he's using some sort of applique, uh, some sort of, I don't want to say sticker, but um, he's applying the product, the finished painting, to the glass and then removing a backing. Okay. Um, so it's it seems to be a completely different method of working. And so the exciting thing for us is trying to find out all the different methods that are being used to create these. I would say to complement the kind of um, specific information uh, Carmen has been uh, giving, um, these four, um, because the prints are available and they are cheaper, occurred already in 1930s when um, scholars were noticing no artist existed anymore to speak about this tradition. There were no one in, uh, no one living, as the, uh, the Professor Tentoon mentioned, um, still existing to speak about it. And so we see a revival in the 50s and we see a revival in the 70s, but in the 70s, as we presented during the lecture, was specifically targeting uh, some pilgrimage sites uh, close to the one we have been um, discovering, Koshan, but also uh, specifically the Nath. And those paintings are still um, uh, sold during the Nath festival and especially the Tangmyeon festival in August. Maybe and tell our listeners what, what the Nath is. Oh, the Nath is a spirit. Um, it's a a living being um, which are thought to protect, um, to protect uh, your life. Um, in Burma, they are a group which have a very specific history called the 37 Nats or 37 Lord. And, and they're, they're kind of regionally located, right? And they are the regionally located and they have been protected specific area. And if you look at... Um, Dr. Benedict Braque de la Perrière did a studies about how it was mapping the old territory from probably um, a pagan area uh, to uh, extended 
uh, the old territory, Pagan being the cradle of the Burmese civilization kind of glove in with the 11th century. The spread of Buddhism that not are kind exactly. Of overlapping so Buddhism covered or tried to um, and to oversee the 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 spirits or the the, the not beliefs, uh, although it tend to coexist and is part of the fabric of. Uh, um, of Buddhist religion in Burma. The consumers for reverse glass painting, would they be, would the, would the temple commission them? W- would, would people donate them? Would there be pilgrims wanting to buy them? I'm, it, it struck me looking your image, looking at your images, how much they, they mirrored some of the rather bright and uh, even even now fluorescent mm-hmm. and yeah. LED powered yeah. <laughs> things that you can buy at a at a at pilgrimage sites and temples, yeah. especially especially Hindu and Buddhist ones. Is there is there a connection? Um, the the use that we found uh, for these paintings is really for shrines, uh, especially the Nat images. So. Um, homes uh, would create a shrine for the gnat that they want to um, that they want to get good uh, good things from usually it's a family um, it's if you think of it as a spirit or um, a greek god the family and usually the region will have a particular one that they're connected to Um, so they can use those images in these shrines so so they're very personal um, and because they're small they can be they can be traveled uh, and they can move around. We also found them in uh, various pagodas and shrines. Um, some of the students that we worked with in Burma um, in Mandalay went to Bagan and they sent me pictures um, not too long ago over Facebook. They were really excited telling me that they found some <laughs> reverse glass paintings in some of the shrines in Bagan that had been sitting there for a very long time. So. It seems like uh, they're kind of personal items, but they're also, um, as Dr. Ramon had found in Thailand, they're also commissioned for temples. And you can imagine that the dramatic effect, if you you know put a candle or a light in front of, you know, that, that playing off the glass, it would much more so than, than a static image. Yeah. Yeah. It's very shiny and um, it, it's something that is resistant to dust as well. So if you're living in a village with a lot of dust coming and going, it's easy to just clean it. You just wipe it and it's completely protected. It's also not fading, so it can last right. for it can be passed on from family to family with if if it doesn't break. Of course, but yeah, they're they're really bright and as you mentioned, the ones that you find now that use electricity seem to be competing with this <laughs> with this very tradition of having something really bright and obvious. In um, Vachonklang, uh, at uh, the village of Meong Son, um, the 200 reverse glass painting uh, has, have been installed around uh, the area where the senior abbot, the senior monk, is welcoming devotees. So it's really always used in a very, very specific sacred place. The 12th International Burma Studies Conference is coming to NIU October 6th through the 9th. The Home Student Center will be hosting scholars from around the world specializing on Burmese studies for this three-day event. The theme this year is Traditions and Challenges. Registration is currently open with special pricing for students. For more information, please visit burmaconference2016.com. Well, we'd love to have... uh, Perhaps we'd have some links to some of your images up, and yeah. w- where can we uh, where can we expect to see some of this uh, this research playing out? What's it? What's uh, what's next on the uh, research docket for uh, this project? Okay, the first uh, the first project coming is uh, a website which has been. Uh, um, uh, nearly completed. Mm, and we started doing a website on Bachongklang. Uh, so this website should be alive this year. And uh, that's uh, really the first uh, to come. 
the second one or the second major so project. So it's, it's kind of narrating your some of your findings and the, with images. What's on this? What's on this website? This website uh, was inspired by a beautiful website MIT has been putting for the art of. Uh, Uh, Asia with themes and essays uh, used for curriculum. So with uh, lesson plans and essay from scholars as well as extremely well-documented group of visual materials. So that's uh, the aim on Southeast Asian art to use as a starting point. So maybe someone teaching art appreciation or exactly. world art or something they could exactly. use they could use exactly. this exactly so that's yeah, we'll have a link up yeah. There. so that's the the first one so the second step we would like to add with the work we have been doing with Yadanabong University Mandalay and uh, Carmen has been part of the uh, the, the project uh, last year and we are going to continue this year is to add the art of making as well as having an exhibition plan this summer, or the preparation of the exhibit this summer with Yadanabong and Mandalay University. So working with faculty and students from there and with, uh, with us. Carmen uh, looks really sad to be have to go back to Burma again this summer. Yeah. I guess I will sacrifice. <laughs> and the third is to have an exhibition uh, in uh, 2018 here. Uh, with a contemporary artist, American artists who have been using this media. Uh, yeah. So that c can be very interesting. We'll have this um, different aspect of the project as well as our collection uh, on view in 2018. And there will be a publication about it. This seems like a good way, to, a good place to segue to some of the, so tell us about some of the collections that are coming up. Oh, uh, <laughs> the major plan for this year is 2000, uh, uh, fall 2016 because it will be the 30th anniversary of the Center of Burma Studies, which was created here at NIU in 1986. And uh, we would like to celebrate this event having four major exhibitions and bringing here contemporary, um, com uh, contemporary art, which I'm going uh, to Burma and Hong Kong this week <laughs> to, um, uh, to bring back um, the work of 30 contemporary artists Exciting. collected by Professor Jan Holiday, who will come in uh, October... Uh, six to give a general lecture on these contemporary artists under censorship, under this new transitional government, and to tell us what is Burmese art today and how they are able to express what is happening as well as the traditional mood. So I can see I've seen some of these images and they're very beautiful, so we should... Make sure to promote those when they when they come out. We'll put those up, and I'm guessing it will correspond to the Burma Studies Conference as well. The Burmese coming conference, up in the fall. Yeah, do you want to get in the plug for the uh, <laughs> conference? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, the uh, International Burma Studies Conference, uh, which will be the number 14th since the Center for Burma Studies has been created. Um, so that means every two years we had a conference. And since I arrived at NIU in 2002, we alternate with either European uh, setting or Asian setting to have an international Burma Studies conference every two years. So for 2016, uh, the... Uh, Uh, International Burma Studies Conference will take place at NIU from October um, 7 to October 9th. We are the Mandala Center, power center for the Center for Study for Burma. We are looking for another interesting collaboration together. <laughs> and we do have a website yeah. for the conference. Tell us the website and we'll also add a link. Yes, it is Burma Conference 2016 at dot com. 
I've been to several of these. Always, uh, always a great. It's it's incredible when you sit back and think. At DeKalb, we have basically this critical mass of almost everyone who works on Burma at the same place coming together and having these amazing um, interactions and presentations. Like it's really unlike anything probably even in Burma <laughs> in terms of the, the, the scholarship, the, the people who can get together and yeah, uh, since um, since Burma uh, became Myanmar in 1989, uh, so Burma Myanmar. Since uh, Burma opened the doors in uh, uh, in December 2012 uh, for the Americans when Obama went there, President Obama went there. Um, we uh, we have seen a lot of. Um, international conference but on Burma and uh, uh, when I ask uh, uh, my colleagues uh, they considered NIU as oh that that's a conference on Burma studies so let's hope to continue <laughs> welcoming uh, I think it's it's really important to have three different venues because for Asian it's easier to travel to Asia right or for European to travel to one of the European countries or here, of course, for the US. But um, it's really a wonderful way of multiplying the interest. Um, Are there plans for our conference to be in, in Burma itself? Yeah, I, I hope that's going to be discussed at AAS and um, the Association for Asian Studies, uh, where, in fact, the Burma Studies Group and the Burma Studies Foundation, created under the umbrella of the uh, Association for Asian Studies, are going to discuss. I hope it will be in Burma next, um, in 2018. Good. So at the conference, or is there going to be kind of a... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, on on Special Friday. Special jubilee. Yeah, on on Friday uh, evening is usually the place where we have um, usually the reception uh, at the uh, art museum where there will be the kaleidoscope of Burmese art as well as uh, the art of the twenty first century from Burma in conversation with our collection, which is more traditional. And there will be then a dinner, and then we'll have, during that dinner, we'll have a lot of uh, um, intervention from different uh, founder members right. of the Burma Studies Group. Unfortunately, Professor Lehman, who was one of the main pillars, is not going to be here. He passed away oh. two weeks ago. But but there will be a lot of recognition. And uh, we'll have the history. We'll have, of course, um, different type of events celebrating this uh, specific occasion. Unu, uh, the first prime minister, was there in 87, a year after the center was created and came specially to uh, open the center. Celebrating its 30th anniversary, the Center for Burma Studies presents the Kaleidoscope of Burmese Art Exhibition Suite. The center has taken over campus with its seven different exhibitions. The NAU Art Museum is hosting four exhibits through November 18th, while the Jack Olson Gallery in the School of Art and Design is hosting two exhibits running through October 27th. Opening October 1st, the Southeast Asia Collection and Founders Memorial Library will host an exhibit featuring maps and manuscripts from the Burma Collection. The exhibits are free and open to all. For more information, visit niu.edu slash Burma. So we're here with a, a Carmine graduate student working on uh, Southeast Asia and art history. So the inevitable question is, <laughs> why why study Southeast Asia? Why study Burma? You could, you've had a lot of feet, irons in a lot of fires. You speak a lot of languages. Um, what What attracts you to... Southeast Asia and to Myanmar. Yeah, so that that really is the big question, right? Um, but I would say, why not study Southeast Asia? Um, it's That's first a of all, question, yeah, um, and and I will speak specifically in terms of um, Burmese art history because that is my focus. Um, but I will say, really, NIU is the center to be at if you want to study Burmese anything. Um, we have the only center for Burma studies in the United States. 
and in the world outside of Burma itself. Yeah, so maybe, remember listeners, they don't know, we, we have a Center for Southeast Asian Studies, and then we have a standalone Center for Burma Studies. We are, we're closely, we're sisters, and we're even in the same building, and yeah. do lots of things together, but there's a, there's a, a, a whole autonomous Center for Burma Studies here as well. Exactly, exactly. We also have uh, Burmese language courses offered every semester um, up until the advanced level. Um, so the resources are definitely there. There are multiple courses that are offered in the subject uh, of Burma, of including art, politics, history, everything you can think of. Um, but really in more of a personal level, I think that the area right now is really an interesting moment to study the art of Burma. Why? Um, I would say because a lot of changes are coming. And it, right now, it's still a good time to go and see an area that is still very traditional, but is being touched and impacted by contemporary times. So you see new technologies coming into the area, and it's really exciting to see how artists are using these new influences. To still juxtaposition of those of those things. Exactly. You still have the very traditional, very deeply rooted uh, beliefs in the country, but at the same time, you see influences coming in. You see the internet coming in, making a big impact in the culture. You see uh, fashion is changing, music is changing, art is changing. And it's really an exciting time to go. Um, and when I regularly meet with Dr. Ramon and we talk about the, the area, she tells me that every time she goes there and she travels quite regularly, at least twice a year to, to Burma, every time she goes, it's already slightly different. Sometimes big yeah. changes are happening. So not only that, but it's also just a really beautiful, magical place to study. And um, So when you, when you went for the first time, how did that, how did that change? I, mean, I remember when I went to Southeast Asia for the first time, it was just transformational yeah. I was I was fascinated and never stopped being um what, what did you did you go with Professor Raymond your first yes, time yes yes um I have um outside of Mexico where I come from I had never left the country and I had a lot of expectations on what I expected would would be this this realm that I had been studying by then for two years uh, as an undergrad but the moment I landed um I felt completely emotional, and it was something that was <laughs> outside of just academic. You've been waiting for a long time and thinking about it. And yeah, thinking about it, trying to um, get everything planned and prepared to go and to study and to finally see the Shredagon uh, Pagoda, to finally see the arts yeah. that were there. Um, I really, it, it's really almost indescribable because the the feeling of landing and. Normally, I've known this country through textbooks and through lectures and through YouTube videos and things I could find on the internet. But you get hit by smells and sounds and a completely different style of living. And um, I know we're told not to make parallels that are too, too, uh, too out there, but I really felt like there was a deep connection to my home in Mexico in the way that life, mm. life in Mexico is very similar to life in Burma. There are a lot of differences, of course, but the the core, the fundamental way of living and working hard was there. So well, the, rhythm, really the rhythms of everyday life are the same for people, say, uh, a, a farmer who yes. is almost anywhere in the world. They will have things that are often much more similar than they would have with farmers across the globe than they would with, say, businessmen in their own capital city. Exactly. Exactly. And so I really came back a completely different person. I would say a better person. Um, I was reminded of how life can be difficult, but you can still have happiness. Yeah, you can persevere. And it really put me in, in a mindset that just made me realize I really want to continue. And I want to make this area the focus of my career. So I highly recommend anybody. What, what's it like to, to take students to Burma? Is it, is it challenging? Is it, is it becoming easier? Uh, what's that? What's that like? 
um, as a, as a French national uh, taking uh, American <laughs> students was a challenge in 2006 because I was not prepared mm-hmm. to have students who suddenly discovered the world is falling apart because they don't have internet and they cannot <laughs> uh, they cannot listen uh, their favorite music all the time yeah. and uh, they cannot communicate. What, you don't have uh, Wi-Fi everywhere? <laughs> and uh, at that time, it was not uh, Twitter and Facebook, but it was really for some <laughs> a big challenge. Um, so that was my first discovery of taking uh, students. But, you know... Uh, as a professor, it's so engaging to have uh, uh, to work as a team and to train the new generation. I think it's really a focus point. And uh, each of my students are contributing to uh, to the, the scholarship uh, I'm producing or they are producing in their MA. So I think it's really a tandem. Uh, if you are a professor, you, you are expected to be a generous person with your knowledge. At least it's my point of view uh, since I've been uh, uh, teaching um, in France or here. So for me, seeing a new generation, even, even if I know they are not all becoming um, Burmese scholars, but they open their mind and this is wonderful. I think... Uh, uh, they are more prepared to see the world differently, and uh, it's a challenging place for them. I lived in Burma in the uh, early 80s uh, with a professor, <laughs> and so uh, at that time they were, of course, um, no bathroom in my room, no fan, <laughs> of course, no <laughs> air condition, and um, I had a mosquito net <laughs> to protect me. Uh, there was no fridge. I mean, it's, it was the old challenge of a new world that was coming from Paris. <laughs> and of course, it was really uh, very uh, different, different music, different uh, way of interacting with um, my peers. Uh, as a PhD students, I had uh, around me a lot of uh, very good friends who became really my, uh, my best buddies uh, at the time of a uh, pretty dark era, but I was focusing on art, so (laughs) I was a little bit unaware of what was going on outside of uh, university. So taking uh, taking back students is also to share with them a privileged and non-privileged situation, and uh, also opening their mind to uh, the importance of visual art in any careers, I would say. So I think it's uh, important to uh, to train them. Um, either they are you know, art major or uh, political science interested in Burmese art, uh, such as uh, some uh, who are here, or in anthropology. I think all of these... Um, as I uh, I foresee in my seminar, are interacting and they are interested in understanding different levels of the Burmese society through visual art. And it seems like this is a heady moment for Burma-Myanmar that things are changing, but it is still in those early stages and it's, it's this yeah. exciting, dynamic period that's mm-hmm. happening. And so... We encourage everyone to stop what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> go to go to Myanmar right now. Yes. <laughs> and and it, it it is a good time yeah. to go to, to to you can you can see things the the country's opening up in ways mm-hmm. uh, it's you can travel more easily than than you would have been able to in the past and without perhaps some of the reservations that one might have had about about going there before some of those things are are fading away. Yeah. Quite frankly, and so it's uh, yeah, it's moving very, very, very fast. As Carmine was mentioning, um, every six months I see big change. Um, I used to uh, to take my bicycle from uh, Yangon University to downtown in the middle of the night. There was nothing. I mean, no problem. Now it's a jump traffic jam (laughs) (laughs) and it's really takes hours to go downtown and uh, 
um, if you right, not you, all the changes are great, but they're <laughs> changes nonetheless. <laughs> and one hour, uh, one hour from Yangon, it's still uh, the life uh, with Rex Show and uh, with. Uh, uh, taking a bath uh, uh, along the bank of the rivers and and so on. I mean, it's uh, just a major changes if you go to the cities of Mandalay or Yangon uh, versus to go to the countryside. Meanwhile, uh, tourists are also visiting um, uh, major sites such as Pagan, and things are also changing a lot. And uh, yeah, uh, I think, uh, like Professor Jones said, I think <laughs> it's really a time to see the change and to go there. Of course, the nostalgic will have the the nostalgia of the mud, as we said in uh, in the French <laughs> <laughs> heritage word. Uh, but uh, I think it's always a good thing to see to see a society transforming, um, it's inevitable. And I think it's also very, uh, it's a time to document and to observe and to go with the flow. And it's a good reminder that those really 19th century paradigms about Asia being the static place that where time stands mm-hmm. still, like that, you know, that even we as scholars, we might have memories of places when the older you get, the more that you realize, like, well, I, the good old days of, um, you know, for me, Indonesia, <laughs> back the way it was, whatever, that, you know, that it's never, it's, it's never static. It is, it is hyperdynamic, and we can't try to freeze in time or ossify those things that we might have liked, because it, because it's, it's an autonomous society that is yeah. as dynamic as our own. My latest fascination is, I saw that you can go to Pagan, see it by balloon, um, oh, yeah. You with, can, an air with an air balloon, like go up and just, Oh yeah. I don't, I, I'm obsessed with this now. <laughs> <laughs> I must do this. Yeah, you can go by train from from uh, uh, Yangon. You can go by boat. You can go by balloon. <laughs> and and uh, visitors can have access to internet with their uh, with their cell phone. I think uh, you heard if here. You she don't promised like, internet. <laughs> if you don't like, <laughs> if you want to break, you go to certain area. I can tell you. Last summer. Uh, I saw in a village, <laughs> I could not, we could not access anyone. So that was really very traditional. So you yes. can have it your way if you yes, want to go off exactly, the grid. If you want to be out of the grid. <laughs> uh, but um, this is for the sake of, uh, of everyone, including the, <laughs> those visiting the place. And of course, for uh, communicating for uh, opening the university again and for uh, stimulating a new path for the new generation. I think it's wonderful the way we can communicate. I think it's a, it's a good thing <laughs> to see the changes. Yeah. Well, Catherine Raymond, Carmen Bruschelli, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you. tune in for more updates about the Center for Rome Studies. Thank you very much for thank welcoming so much. us. Southeast Asia Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney for production assistance and Taylor Atkins for this week's music. Thanks, guys.